0: Welcome back. My name is Sue and we're here for another of our Learn with Sue Walk and Talk podcast where we talk to interesting people about interesting topics Um, and we will connect everything to the science of positive psychology, emotional intelligence and neuroscience and this is all about helping us be the best we can be. And um, I am joined today by uh, somebody I've known for a little while since completing our diploma but has a very interesting journey. So um, Julie would you like to introduce yourself a little bit and share with people um who you are, how you how you see yourself. Because I don't want to put words in your I see no, you in lots well. of different
1: ways, but how do you see yourself? So hi all. I'm yep Julie Zarefa and I'm sitting here in Christchurch, New Zealand um talking to Sue and had uh was lucky enough to see Sue about oh, it must be about months ago now in Byron Bay when I attended the alumni get-together of graduands of the Diploma in Positive Psychology. But I I guess I came to meet Sue and the whole field of positive psychology through, um, sadly through adversity, which maybe is sometimes the case. But I'm a clinical psychologist by by trade and training, um, more of a traditional clinical psychologist, until I, yeah, t- just about a really huge interest in actually this whole field of positive psychology and well-being and what was it all about and was starting to look into that when um got forced to look even more into it when when I suffered um, significant bereavement in my life and it sent me down a journey of basically choosing which path I was going to go down or up and I chose the up um including a big foray into into positive psychology and um so and the program as well
0: brilliant Julie and it's interesting Julie when I ask people how they sort of describe themselves what we say because it's you know are you uh, a mother are you a grandmother are you a psychologist are you this are you that you know how we sort of see see ourselves and um and yeah we met it was quite a number of years ago now when you did the um the diploma of positive psychology Mm. and, uh, and then it was great to see you back in Byron recently and the journey that you've been on and as you said um you you sort of came to this in some regards, sort of in a much stronger way, perhaps because of adversity. And, and I like what you said there, as many people do. And it's interesting because sometimes people see positive psychology as a bit of a happy clappy science. And yet mm-hmm. many people like yourself actually realize that we need this stuff with adversity and it works for us with adversity. So yeah. I know this is not necessarily how you define yourself. Um, you are many different things um but you wrote a book on what happened to you um uh, or what happened in your life really the adversity you had to face um would you be prepared to share with everybody a little
1: bit about that um and the journey that then you went on yes for sure so um i i did write a book i guess it's well it's it's memoir you know classified as non book. yeah it's, it's called grief on the run um grief on the run how active grieving helped me cope with devastating loss. And, you know, the story behind that is that, you know, you say, how do you define yourself? And yes, I'm a clinical psychologist, but I was also a, uh, you know, happy and contented wife, in retrospect, um, mother of three gorgeous children in their late twenties, you know, grand, uh, yeah. Daughter, sister, you name it—all of those roles, and then the career as well—and so busy, happy, fulfilling, productive life. Um, and you know, we never know what's around the corner, do we? And I'd, I'd had a little bit of—I'd um, well, had, actually, to be honest, more than your fair share of adversity. Um, in terms of bereavement, I lost my brother at um, when I was thirty-two. He was five years older to to a, a brain cancer. Um, and we'd had the Christchurch earthquakes, and you know a few things to deal with, but nothing like what sent me off on this journey, which was very sadly the loss of my husband at the age of sixty. He was sixty to pancreatic cancer, a um, bit of a mm, diagnosis that you don't really want to get in terms of the cancers, and and um you know the kind of advanced grieving that occurs with losing someone inevitably to cancer, and that being you know toughen up on its own. I was 54 at the time, um, but left with three gorgeous kids who were going to rally around me and look after me and take me traveling with them and what have you. And very tragically and sadly, 16 days later, my eldest son, Sam, um, lost his life in a drowning accident um, here in New Zealand. So, yeah, yeah you know, kind of, you got the You've got the loss of an anticipatory grieving, then you've got the shock, horror, tragedy, um, you know, acu- acute grieving. And yeah, be fair to say, it threw me into a bit of a whirlwind of, um, okay, how do I best manage this? And how do I manage this so that I can be, as you say, the best person that I can possibly be going forward, despite this? You know these awful occurrences, and and actually a role model to my remaining two children, and for those around me that um, all had a vested interest in my well-being. So the book um, it talks about the my early life and our our idyllic existence, which always is, and you know in retrospect, um, and then the the situation around the sort of events of the tragedy and then what I did really so the second half of the book is really what Julie's Zarefa did in order to to cope with this devastating loss and that was to go on a bit of a, um, a massive well big journey of what are called active grieving which was to undertake some really quite significant physical undertakings around the world which incorporated as it turned out many many of the facets of positive psychology
0: yeah and it's interesting because you said at the beginning you sort of had to choose up and I I think that's a really interesting phrase that you use because when we get hit by adversity um, as you said it's going to happen to everybody at some point in a greater or lesser extent we're all going to experience some form of adversity um, and sometimes we don't think of it as a choice. It's just like something's happened to us. Right. But I love the fact that you said you chose up. And um, I think your your story, your book, is beautifully written. Um, your story is very inspiring. As you you took action. And I think I like the phrase you use, active grieving. So yeah. how did those actions, because I know you walked the Camino Trail and you did some uh, cycling trips overseas, et cetera. Um, yeah. what, what was the, the point of that for you? As in, what did it do for you that allowed you to process this quite devastating situation of one you kind of knew was gonna happen and one death that you clearly had no idea. It was um, completely out of the blue. How did it help you handle those situations?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I had the added benefit probably of being a psychologist and knowing uh, a little bit about the tools of the trade in terms of um, behaviorism in particular, which is about keeping on moving, um, actually upping the ante and the things that the behaviors that you choose to undertake that are going to be helpful coping strategies. So you know I had that benefit of academic knowledge but I also I knew myself pretty well and I knew intuitively that what was going to work for me was to to remain fit to get even fitter to to travel to connect with new people um because we'd all we'd all you know everyone around me had suffered this double you know tragedy as well and I just knew that I needed to probably get somewhere where I could redefine myself as, you know, as Julie Zarefa and everything that that who I am. Um, I'd been pretty quiet for the years that Paul was passing because obviously it wasn't appropriate to be, you know, frisky, frivolous, whatever, but that is who I am. So it was just this opportunity to get away from from home for a while and, and just find out who I was, again, and who I wanted to be going forward. Um, interestingly, giving, and I really still can't explain why giving in terms of altruism became really hugely important to me, but I, I couched it in the terms of knowing that it would be something that Paul and Sam would have been very proud of, so engaged in a lot of fundraising when I was undertaking these, um, you know, big physical ventures, and yes, they included... They included cycling around Sri Lanka and um, raising a lot of money to bring money back and buy uh, bikes for Kiwi kids. It included walking the Camino um, de Santiago from France across the top of Spain. And um, that actually got made into a movie called Camino Skies. It included running the New York Marathon and raising a lot of money for the Mental Health Foundation of New Zealand. These things were all, um, to a degree... Uh, being you know I was being a bit mercenary because I paid for a year's worth of travel insurance and I also was you know fit so I wanted to capitalize on that (laughs) and then then the book the idea of the book I just kept thinking I feel like I need to pen my story not necessary for others at the time it was more to get it out from my heart and body and you know catharsis in that way um, and for my immediate family members but as I kept thinking about the idea and people, I guess people who were quite flattering would say, look, you you've just actually been hugely, hugely inspiring in how you cope with this. So yeah, let's, you know, put that book out there and see if it talks other people who've um have significant adversity too, whatever that might be. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting, again, a couple of things you said there around, um, obviously the altruism, that giving back, you know, we often talk in positive psychology about the whole meaning aspect. Mm -hmm. And sometimes when we have a big uh, situation that rocks our world, it can shift that sense of meaning of who we are, why we do what we do. Um, So it makes sense that you also felt that real draw to want to make a difference. And and yes, I'm sure they both would have been proud of you and the rest of your family were all proud of you. Mm -hmm. And yet there's something about that knowing that you're out there in the world making a difference um so that kind of makes sense to me about the Mm. the sense of meaning yeah yeah yeah. I want to come back to something you said about um finding out who you are and and I don't know if you've got any thoughts or advice for for people listening because your sense was um you need to rediscover who Julie is if you like Mm. and and I totally understand that and that often can be the case, whether you've been hit by adversity or not, as in people become somebody else's wife or partner, somebody else, you become somebody's daughter and, and you've, you fit in a mold. And sometimes it's very easy for people to lose them that who I am as a person. And I see that whether people are in a particular situation um, or just in general, in life, they've become uh who people expect and Mm. and I remember as a child or not as a child as a teenager I suppose um my upbringing I was always known as Tony's daughter Hazel's daughter Janet's sister or Nigel's sister-in-law and (laughs) it wasn't until I came to Australia for my year traveling it was like oh my goodness I'm Sue now I can be who I want to be What what advice do you have of whether it's through adversity or difficult situations or whether it's in general we've become a persona if you like how do we step out of that do we all go and walk the Camino what are our options
1: well this is the thing I was very clear both when I wrote the book and also in in, um you know speaking engagements I've done what have you is that yeah would be nice to think we could all go and walk the Camino but you know I was very very lucky to have the time the support the resources to be able to do that um but, you know, not, not everybody does, and, and I'm, I'm very clear on that. And, the, I mean, I think the key messages of um, being able to kind of do a bit of a stock take and think, okay, yeah, who am I? Who, what am I defined by what? Um, really, what, what makes me proud of myself? You know, what is it about me that I see as unique or something that I would, de- you know, when I was describing myself to others, what would that be? I think we can achieve that. Um, I think we can achieve that in day-to-day life because often we are kind of constrained by <laughs> having to work and having to, um, you know, be in the, those roles and what have you. I guess the model I came back to, um, and it was sort of ties in, and it's the kind of one of the models in positive psychology, the five ways to well-being model, which is very much around okay, a stock take around, um, am I, you know, am I learning anything new at the moment? Am I am I doing anything sort of out of my comfort zone in terms of what, an instrument or a language suit or a, um, you know, a pottery class or whatever? Or am I just getting up every day, going to work, coming home, making dinner, chilling in front of Netflix and, and that's it. So the learning component, I think one that, is really important um, the altruism or the giving of ourselves without any expectation of of any kind of gain back to us is is quite a thing I think can um, change it up a bit. Um, connecting, as I said, and and they're all interrelated. So we get a lot. We get a lot of growth out of you know meeting new people in new situations and and being able to practice our you know, our banter, our, um, you know, what our personality style is, what have you, rather than what we've become known as. um, Choosing what we focus on. So I think that's a big one too. You know, we can, as I say, yeah, we can deliberately choose to go out there every morning and find a sunset or every evening find a sunrise or be in nature or, you know, really think about what it is that we're doing, are we engaging behaviours that kind of fill our cup or are we not? Um, So those, I think that kind of model was quite a useful one to think about in terms of, I mean, yes, I'd, I'd advise anyone who possibly could to walk the Camino, it was a marvellous experience, but I'm well aware that it's not within everyone, you know, everybody's yeah. means or capabilities, yeah.
0: But I think to your point, the five ways of well-being, I really like those because one of the first ones is be aware. And mm. I think if you can be aware of when are you at your best, when are you energized, when are you stretching yourself, when are you uncomfortable? Um, those sorts of things can be really important. And as you say, they link to the other ones around the connecting, the learning, the altruism, the, the you know, the giving back element. Um so what about now in your life? You know, what are the things you do every day that keeps your well-being high? Mm, mm.
1: So you know we've all had this COVID hiatus, and um, I am itching to go now. Um, And we just talked off air about the fact that luckily I'm off to Italy again at uh, the end of the month. But I now every day I I feel that you know I was obviously terribly sad to lose two you know my husband and my son. I mean this is just no denying. But but at the same time their losses have created immense kind of personal growth for me and made me very aware of, of those things on a, a daily basis that um, keep me positive and upbeat and in and, and flow you know the language of positive so in flow totally and and so every morning the alarm goes off and I hit the beach with my um, cock spaniel puppy and and trot on down and meet a group of um fellow dippers here in Christchurch so we swim in the sea all year round uh coming up to July we call it the July challenge we have to dip every single day in order to get the coveted kind of lanyard or medal um and the average temperature is about eight degrees so you know definitely definitely out of one's comfort zone (laughs) um, you know made up for by the the hotties the bulky warm clothes afterwards, the coffee, the camaraderie, um, yeah, fantastic. Uh, thereafter, been doing a lot of local kind of exploring around New Zealand. My biggest, yeah, really big thing since my bereavements has actually been getting into nature and, um, and I was systematically taking off some of the great walks of New Zealand um, and just getting a lot of joy in, in being out there in the fresh air, the you know, beautiful scenery, what have you. Um, and I think reading, reading a lot, but reading a lot of what interests rather than, you know. Um, Yeah, and and being very mindful of my, the people that I spend time with. So um, somewhere in in positive psychology, we (laughs) sounds a bit negative, and it's not really, but it's that permission to do it, as I say, a bit of a stop take of who's in your life. And do they do they add to life or are they energy vampires? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awful term, but we do all have energy vampires. And it was really liberating for me to learn that actually you can click those energy vampires on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we get better at with maturity and, and you know. Yeah. Was, yeah. And again,
0: when I think about the things that you've said there, and we kind of all know this, and I, I've had a saying for years, you know it, do you do it? And the things that you've mentioned there, there are sometimes the basic ones, the eat, sleep, exercise, the nature, Mm. the getting out, the fresh air, the connecting with people. Um, And yet, to your point, sometimes, whether it's bereavement, or whether it's other challenges we're going through in life, we sometimes forget those basic things that actually Mm. doing exercise every day, whatever it is, is good for us being out in nature is good for us even if you don't feel like seeing another person actually connecting with another person Mm. is good for us so in those moments where you don't feel like doing it how do you get yourself doing it
1: Mm. so so in my so I worked um, just part-time in private practice and it's funny how to yeah how simplistic it seems to me now but then you're working with people they go oh there was a light bulb moment and it's Um, probably my advice around that is and everybody's different but I think a lot of people do kind of can adhere to this kind of advice and it's around um, planning so you know sitting down on a Sunday night thinking okay what's this week look like for me having something as simple as a you know weekly activity planner where you slot in the commitments that you know you have and then slot in around it goals for the week around exercise around I I just find you much more likely to do them if they're written down and stuck somewhere in your face Um, you know some people need a little inherent reward system um, and that's fine too but I think motivation it's it's intrinsic but it's also can be external in terms of a, a visual kind of reminder and some planning that goes into it um, I do a thing with clients. It's called the 168-hour week, and it's just literally right, um, drawing a big circle of um, a big empty circle, which represents 168 hours, and then divvying it up into wedges, compartments, yep. which constitute sleep, work, whatever else. And thinking about what the other compartments are—those you know? yeah. things that we know are good for us: exercise, you know, good sleep, etc., etc., and being really mindful about that because the alternative is the less helpful coping strategies which yeah. are you know alcohol, drugs, smoking um,
0: binge watching Netflix <laughs> yeah
1: exactly and and you know I'm not, there's no judgement here whatsoever I've, I've done all of those things but um, actually not smoking but you know it's just, it's just taking back the control really isn't it and knowing that you are an active participant in your own Yeah. And your own journey. And And
0: it was it was something you said also when you said about the swimming. And you know, you you have to dip every day in order to get your little medallion at the end. And Mm. you also said about meeting people. So there seems to be something in there as well about that habit. And I know for myself when I'm at home. I have the habit of I get up, I go for a walk on the beach, et cetera. And it's usually first thing because it's early when we're recording this. I'll go later. Um, And yet every morning it's get out of bed, go to the beach. And yet when I travel, that habit is very easy to go out the window because you've got to be ready earlier. You don't have Mm. the time. There's no beach there, you know. So there's things that can get in the way. So Mm. there seems to be something as well about that commitment to others and that when you make it habitual, it gets Mm. much easier to keep, even on the days where you don't feel like doing it
1: yeah yeah yes it's a it's it's personal accountability isn't it as well as accountability to others if you have arranged to meet someone you don't want to let them down um but i think it's also the knowledge of just how it makes you feel and how good it makes you feel as opposed to yeah how you feel less good if you um
0: And it was funny because um, yesterday I I had a 2 a.m. session. So I went to bed about 8.30 the day before yesterday and uh, got up at 1 o'clock. And for some reason, I found it hard to get back to sleep afterwards, which is unusual. Usually I zonk straight out, but I didn't get back to sleep until 5 Um, a.m. And so I was a bit dodgy yesterday. I was a bit kind of like discombobulated. And um, and my other half said to me at um, about 5.30, how do you fancy a walk down the beach? And I was feeling really pooped and I my head went, oh, it's the last thing I want. And I have yeah. this rule in my head that as the minute I hear myself say that's the last thing I feel like doing, I yeah. have to do it. Yeah. So I have these little rules in my head that if my brain goes, oh, I don't want to, it's the last thing I feel like doing, then yeah. I have to go and do it. So uh, and of course, you know what happens, you end up, you know, 20 minutes later, you've had a bit of a walk, you watch the sun go down, and it's beautiful, And you feel better and uh, whatever you so I think sometimes for me having those funny little rules for myself, um, do tend to help me.
1: Yeah, yeah, a lot to be said for that sun, I think, isn't it going down (laughs) or up or whatever it is. But yeah, I mean, you know, that said, we don't need to. Be so purist that we're not allowed to kind of give ourselves a bit of a break sometime. Uh, interesting, this week, you know, I've had um COVID and I'm feeling a bit frustrated because I feel essentially okay, a little bit low part essentially okay, but having to be responsible and kind of isolate away. Um, and it's frustrating because I'm not having been able to go and you know go and dip and and meet the others. And yeah, it definitely isn't helping with that yeah
0: it's it changes mistake, how you feel doesn't it yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. so not only are you sick but then you're not getting the benefits that you would mm. normally get from doing what you normally do yeah,
1: yeah. so bring so bring where on.
0: do you see um life sort of taking you as far as your your well-being um the things you want to do the things you want to achieve where's uh what's the future look like for you
1: yes well as I say sort of been you know champing at the bit um without restrictions, as has everybody. So I see, I I mean, I just, I really reflect on the the two years um, post bereavements as to how they were quite game changing for me in terms of my whole MO and and, um, not wanting to I mean, I've never been one who wants to waste a minute, but <laughs> it was even more intense. And I see going forward, you know, much more learning. I'm really loving being in this space and learning, you know, absorbing all I can about everything, positive psychology related. Um, I see more travel on the horizon. I see, uh, yeah, more kind of, I, I, I've had a bit of a lull lately in terms of meeting new people or... Doing new things. I'm quite excited about that going forward. Um, And I'm a grandmother now, so I've got three grandchildren and one on the way in the last three years, which is immensely rewarding. So, a lot of positivity, a lot of, you know, special family and friend time, but also I will keep on being active. I will keep on learning. I will keep on growing. Yeah, keep on giving those things that i found just immeasurably helpful.
0: Yeah. And um, obviously because of your book and because of the keynotes you get asked to do, um, for other people that have been through some sort of bereavement, whether it's they know it's coming or whether it's unexpected, Mm. um, we know that everybody needs to go on their own journey often. It's not like you can say, if you do these three steps, you'll be fine.
1: Um,
0: Yeah. But what tips and tricks do you have that can help somebody sit with the grief um, as well as handling that bereavement? What, what sort of things can you would offer as advice for somebody who might be experiencing this at the moment?
1: Mm, I think, you know, one of my chief motivators for writing the book was to actually sort of essentially disprove this theory or the model that a lot of people um you know, have have been have been taught or have been privy to in their lives in terms of the model of grief being historically one that that it was quite an orderly thing that you went through these five stages and came out you know two years time good to go. <laughs> and I just you know, it's, it's just not <laughs> it's just not that way. Grief is idiosyncratic, um, and we never know when it's when you're actually going to have a moment where you actually feel totally overwhelmed and quite you know lost for a period of time but I think that it's the permission to actually know that it's actually fine and actually good to keep on living and the grief will track alongside yes that real permission to not stop everything you know Victorian times they dressed in black and the widows appeared X number of months later, whatever, that's just, I don't see that as being helpful, I think, the permission to to keep on living, living well, thinking about what the person that you'd lost like would want for you, and but also being able to sit with that grief when that happens, you have have ceremonies or have um, yeah, I... little rituals that you do, I got a huge solace out of signs, um, you know, just, yeah, decided that whenever I was somewhere and two birds were close by, that it was inevitably, you know, Paul and Sam would come to visit or rainbows or whatever. So there's those sorts of things that also can be hugely comforting and there's no science to that. It's just, Absolutely. you know, it's meaning to you,
0: but yeah. I, I agree. And I, I find the same. I remember, and it's certainly nothing like you've experienced, but when my nan passed away a few years ago now, um, there were two things that I deliberately did Um One is when we had her funeral, there were lots of dragonflies. So now, like you, every time I see a dragonfly, I'm like, oh, there's Nanny. And I know it's not Nanny, it's a dragonfly. Um, But still, it makes you feel better. Um, But the other thing is when I flew home from the funeral, I deliberately made a decision that I would only ever experience or or think about my Nan with gratitude. And I remember... All the reasons that will come back and hit you. And whenever it does, it's always for me then, okay, well, what can I, um, what can I be grateful for? What can I remind, remind myself of how lucky I was? Mm. And to your point about rituals, I was in Italy recently. And on one of the free days that I had, I deliberately went to a cemetery. I, d- I actually find different forms of cemeteries and churches and things, even mm. though I'm not religious, I feel them quite beautiful. And yes. there was this beautiful cemetery just outside Montepulciano that I just wandered around and um, looked at the graves and thought of it. There was one that was looking a bit dilapidated. So I picked up a stone and sort of put it on the top just to let the person know they remembered, etc. Oh, and no. thought about Nan myself. And so I wonder if those little um, interesting rituals, those signs that you mentioned, they do something for us in helping us still stay connected with that person and allowing grief to be.
1: I think they really do. You know, I, yeah, I've been in numerous situations in the last five years where, um, you know, I have just noticed whatever it be, something in a pair, you know, and it's like, oh. You know, and you just, yeah, you feel, you do, you feel really connected in that moment.
0: Yeah, and I think your words of grief goes alongside. Mm. It doesn't follow a pathway and a format and, okay, we're done, bang, thanks very much, I've I've finished that bit now. It sort of runs alongside, so it's not like you ever then forget the person or you don't have those moments. Um, But it is, I, I loved your phrase, the permission to continue your life. Mm. Yeah yeah so uh if you think about i mean obviously i i think your book's fabulous so for anybody listening grief on the run um i have to admit i i cried during the uh the book uh which doesn't often happen uh when i'm reading um non-fiction for some reason i cry all the time at fiction <laughs> but um um so it is a beautiful book um if you, again, if you think about just final um, sort of tips for people, what have you read or listened to recently that you found really helpful in this space? Mm. What inspires you?
1: I, yeah, I guess, um, well, to digress slightly, but just prior to coming to Byron Bay, i have been in Melbourne and i have been to... Um, a workshop two day workshop of Bessel van der Kolk, which uh, who's the um, chap who wrote The Body Keeps the Score, and that really spoke to me in terms of again, um, this his essential take home message was that we've spent years trying to kind of medicalize or, or treat you know trauma and tra- you know, loss as trauma, bereavement is Trauma, believe me, in the body, and you do feel it. Um, and we've, you know, we've medicated, we've used talking therapies, whatever. And it really spoke to me that that he was advocating more of a move into sort of somatic type work. And by that I mean, I mean um message, art therapy, sort of the creative outlets that allow people to release that kind of um the physiological. Mm, agitation agitational distress that is evoked, you know, with by any kind of trauma and, you know, bit of bereavement in particular. I mean, again, I can't explain it, but definitely, um, every November rocks round, you know, which is the anniversary of losing Paul and Salmon, and my body knows it it reacts accordingly. I, you know, lose a bit of weight and I feel a bit more, you know, but agitated, what have you. So that was yeah, so it's, it's a slight digression, but I just I found that very powerful, and, and you can sort of access some of that work through on podcasts or you know YouTube or whatever. Um, reading, I tend to stay away from reading books about grief, to be honest. Like, um, possibly that's a bit arrogant, but I feel like I've <laughs> had enough of a, a diet. It's <laughs> not of...
0: arrogant at all.
1: Well, I know actually, arrogant is the wrong word, but I, you know, I feel like I've had enough of a diet of grief to kind of just now, um, yeah, move forward so I tend to read more around i'm trying to get more of my head around all the positive psychology um you know work and the happiness stuff and what have you so
0: yeah Good on you. And and again, to your point, and you would understand this from a clinical psychologist perspective is sometimes it can be too easy to sit in the, the, the negative, the deficit and and keep on about that. But actually what we want to be doing is pulling forward. Uh, What's next? What can we do? How can we be the best version of ourselves? So, um, and I have to admit for those listening, the Bessel van der Kolk book, um, the body keeps the score is an excellent book around that. And uh, having had one of my, my own personal situations from a, a physical perspective I totally understand because mm-hmm. your body holds tension in different places your body reacts to different things um mm-hmm. And I always know myself when I'm getting to a tipping point, because if mm. I pay attention to my body now, it'll tell me what's going on. Yeah. Um, but often to your point, we we done things from a very medical perspective or a cognitive perspective, and we forget to actually tap into uh, what our body is trying to tell us. So I think that's a great tip. It's not a digression at all. It's a great one.
1: <laughs> mm. And I read books about adventures now, you know, about big, whatever walks I can undertake next, what's reason around the world or, you know, yeah.
0: Well, on that note, Julie, we'll bring this to a close. But I'm very excited that you get to go back to Italy, because I know uh, that holds a special place. That's where you wrote your book. And uh, and I know the travel is important to you. And having just got back myself, I, uh, I know the power of going to Italy and yes. and certainly eating pasta and
1: oh, yes. oh, yes. an April spritz. <laughs> Igleo, olio, bring it on
0: <laughs> yeah. well thank you for sharing a little bit of your story with us um, and it's been lovely sort of uh, being connected with you for a number of years now and actually getting to uh, see you in person recently and I shall be thinking of you in Italy uh, when you're down at the Amalfi Coast and walking along the coastlines and exploring oh, Puglia yeah. and all those sorts of things so thank you for sharing your story with us. You're welcome Sue, it was lovely to talk to you And thank you, everybody, for listening. I hope you've uh, enjoyed listening to Julie's story. We will also put the link um, uh, to her book if you're interested in reading it. Um, But please come back, listen to more. uh, If you want more conversations and our live uh, sessions with our experts, etc., then please consider becoming a member of learnwithsue.com.au. We'll see you next time for another Learn With Sue Walk & Talk podcast. Thanks, everyone.